We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I'm glad you're here tonight. I hope everybody's doing well. You look great. Uh, it's been a great week so far. Um, we have, as many of you know, because you have children or grandchildren there, we have kids camp. That's one of the things that is... Um, I'm just so proud of our church and how involved they are. We're so blessed to have Southwest Community College right around the corner. And so Tuesday night, last night, um, starting on Tuesday afternoon, last night and this morning, we had our first through third graders that were there. They spent the one night at kids camp, had a great time, uh, had a great night, a wonderful time together, um, praising the Lord. We had a shaving cream war last night on the field. We had a blast. And then they left this morning, and all of our fourth through sixth graders were there um, last night um, from, uh, or they got here this afternoon, excuse me, about four o'clock, and they're going to be there all the way till Friday morning. And so you pray for them. If you go by, you'll see them. Um, we were there last night with the first through third graders, and we had at water games and races and the fire trucks came out and sprayed and everything else and one of one of our kids um if i if i look like i'm a little gimpy i think i might but if i look a little gimpy tonight uh one of our uh one of the third graders decided to tell me that he thought um that i was just an old preacher and that he would definitely be able to beat me in a race i said you're on jack i said uh uh I said, I said, let's go. I had on a pair of hey dudes. I had to crunch my toes up in them just to keep my, just to keep them on. So we took off, and boom! I dusted this kid. I mean, you boom! I think his last name was Hall. Boom! I got all the way. I got, I got all the way to the, to the end. That kid looks at me and he said, "You cheated. You got, you got an unfair. You started before I did." I said, "All right, take off. I'm gonna count to five, and then I'm gonna catch you." Boom, he takes off. I counted, now I counted fast, but I counted five. One, two, three, four, five. And boom, I took off. And I thought I was going to catch him quicker, and I caught him. So we got about halfway down to the race, and I thought, I'm actually fixing to have to turn this on. So I opened it up as quick as I could do it. So anyway, I ended up beating him both times. I don't believe in letting children win. I don't believe in false senses of confidence. I believe you beat them into the ground early. Then when they get older, you know, maybe, that, maybe they'll be able to do it on their own. So anyway, I, I get through, and I realize... I don't think I have an Achilles tendon on my left foot anymore, uh, and, and so I, I've realized the the value now in my uh, in my 40s that you have to stretch it out. But we had a had a great time. I'm glad to be back with you all. Um, sometimes when people come back from vacation and they'll say, "I'm glad to be back," you'll say, "Oh, they're just saying that." No, like I'm I'm really 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 glad to be back with you all i'm kind of a homebody anyway some of you are like that um that's just kind of how i'm built i don't mind traveling but I, it's not my it, it's not what it is for some folks but um so i, I mentioned in our nine o'clock service sunday <clears throat> and uh i did not tell the the same story in our 10 30 service because i knew some people were watching on live stream so i had to be a little more careful uh, about telling the story about what happened but just to to kind of give you all a, a little brief synopsis uh while we were there and the the trip was and my, my mother went with our family and one of her bucket list things was she wanted to see the pacific ocean she wanted to see a live whale and she wanted to see a redwood tree. Those are like things that she wanted to see, which by the way, which are great things. Um, if, if you are someone who is 
older in years and you're developing a bucket list, that's great. But I had to have a conversation with my mother because she'll say, now this may be the last trip I ever go on. We've been saying that for four years. So finally, I preemptively on this trip, she sat down and I said, I just want to tell you something. This may be the last trip that I ever go on. And she looked at me. I said, I figure I'd just go ahead and let you know because that could be true for any of us. So we went out. So anyway, we go up the Pacific Coast. So it really, I'd, I'd never done that before either. I'd never seen a redwood tree. So that part was really, really pretty. But we get there, and I'll preface this by saying, I, and I don't know how this is possible, but I'm 43 years old, and the last time I had a stomach virus, I was nine. I have made it since I was in the third grade is the last time I had a stomach virus. Well, it found me. Um, it found me. We had been there about a day, and I'm telling you, like, just over overwhelmed uh, with that. So that was the front end of the trip, and the back end of the trip, on our last day there, I shared this with our 9 o'clock service, all Mary Lindsay wanted in the world was to take a picture in front of the full house house. If y'all know what I'm, it's the, the painted ladies in San Francisco. Daddy, please, before we go home, can we go see those full house houses? I want to take a picture in front of the full house house. Sure we can. MapQuest, drive right up. I park from here to the office. I mean, like really like two blocks down. We walk up this hill, she takes a picture, we walk back down the hill between seven and eight minutes. I get back to the car, the windows are busted out of the car, and they have stolen, uh, they've stolen Luke's luggage, they've stolen, um, they, they've stolen a, make, a makeup bag, like a bunch of stuff out of the, out of the top. So at any rate, um, so we had a, we, we almost lost our mind because there was a baseball cap and a pair of Oakleys that were in there and like, and so we, we finally got settled down from there. So we ended up having a debate. And, and I know in your family, different people call it different things. We'll just call it a, a spirited debate um, about what to do now. Because <clears throat> there are people, and, and it's just like this, and any, there are people that want to do everything by the letter of the law. In other words, we need to call the police. We need to wait till the police get here. Well, first of all, just to give you a warning, if you're in San Francisco and you can't prove that they stole over $980 from you worth of things, the police will not come. You are w carte blanche to steal whatever you want to steal as long as it's not over $1,000. So they don't even respond to the call. So, um, so the winners busted out. So we're we're sitting there having a having a grand time, um, and these people are walking by on the street. Like I'm standing there on the street, so I'm kind of thinking about what, what we're gonna do. And um, you know, um, my wife's saying we can't drive this thing anywhere because there's broken glass in the back, and I don't want it to blow out. And my mother's wanting all the the police to come and wanting to contact the rental agency, and, and I'm standing on the street, and, um, and people are constantly walking by, and, and you must have left something in the back of your car. <laughs> so evidently the rule, I didn't know this rule. Here's the rule. If you ever go to San Francisco, you leave absolutely nothing, not even a cup, if you think it's something that somebody might want. And even then, you leave all your doors open because if you do lock the doors and there's anything they want, they just bust the windows out and take, take it out. That's normal operating behavior. Um, which And so I'm, 
So I'm, I'm listening to this, and the sixth person, because I'm counting them, one, two, three, four, five, six, it walks by, shouldn't have left anything in your car, you shouldn't have left anything in your car, and I'm thinking, nobody here knows I'm a preacher. Like, nobody, I can, I, I, nobody here knows. If I, 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 as long as I don't make national news, I'm good. Like, that's what's going, that's what, that's what's going through my mind. So, at that point, I decide, you know what, I'm done. Like, we're leaving. So my mom has a walking stick, like a, like she doesn't need it, like for, but like we go on a hike, it's like a hiking stick, you know, it's got a little crutch at the top, got a little four prong thing at the bottom. I grab the hiking stick out and I tell them all to get out of the car and I finish busting all the glass out of the car. Like just, you don't want it to blow back on you, y'all get back, let's just knock all the glass out. So I'm standing on the street in San Francisco busting all the glass out of the car, out of the rest of the car. And this is the part that got me. People are steadily walking by and not even, like, that doesn't even seem to bother them at all. They're just walking by, and I'm steady busting glass out, and either they just know that I got my stuff stolen or they think I'm stealing it, but either way, it's so normal that they don't even turn their heads to look. So at the end of that, I'm kind of at this point, not just aggravated, but I've taken in as much of this as I can take in. Because sometimes you want to see, you, you really do want to see things for yourself. You know, like sometimes I wonder from the news coverage, is the border really as bad as they covered on the news? I haven't seen that for myself. Is, are some of these big cities really as bad as you hear about on the news? So a lot of things are getting confirmed, you know, as, I, as I'm looking at all of this. But when I tell you, this is the, out of all of that, the most disturbing part of it is, is that even though where we live, because of media, um, we're exposed to everything, certainly our community is not immune from problems, certainly we're not immune from anti-God, anti-biblical forces, but we are the recipients of there still being vestiges of living in an area that is not totally anti-God, even if all of the people aren't Christian people. When you get in some areas of the country, you start to realize that it is not just lostness as it is a vehement hatred for the things of God, a vehement hatred for the Word of God, and certainly when it comes to, some of you saw uh, recently, I have no trouble believing this now, how many of you saw this week uh, about the award that the L.A. Dodgers gave out? I don't know if any of you saw this. There's a, there, there, there's a group um, that was, at, at, it's actually mocking Catholicism, but um, basically transgenders dressing up like Jesus and um, pretending to be crucified, and they ended up giving them an award for their human rights and human service activity there from the L.A. Dodgers. And so you're reading this and listening to it and thought, how can this be? And so tonight, as we continue this series together of what it means, this written and read in the words of Jesus, I want us to think about for just a little while that it is not a new phenomenon that the world hates Christ, that the world hates the church, that the world's going to hate the gospel, that the world's going to hate scripture, and that the world's going to hate followers of Christ. In fact, Jesus told us that. John 15, if you haven't already opened there, John 15, uh, we're going to look at a few verses of scripture tonight because I think it helps us to understand that the world that we're observing around us should not, even though it dismays us, it should not surprise us. John chapter 15, I'll begin reading in verse 18. 
If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. That's about as clear as it gets. Verse 20, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come... And spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else had done, they would be guilt. They would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen these miracles, and yet they've hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. How clear is that? I mean, that's, that is absolutely straightforward. Jesus says, they hate me. They're going to hate you if you love me. They hate my message. They hate my name. They hate my word. Sometimes I think we need to have a news flash that it is not a new development that the world hates the things of God. That is absolutely been going on for thousands of years. What we see now are different manifestations of that, different ways that that comes out. So just historically, and I've given you some things here in this introduction just to think about from a historical standpoint, um, the church always facing opposition. The Jews considered Christians to be heretics, thus they thought persecuting them brought honor to God. By persecuting the early church, the Jews thought they were actually currying favor with the Lord. Then Rome labeled Christianity an illegal religion because of Christians' allegiance to Christ over Caesar. You know that because it wasn't up until the 4th century B.C. that the Roman Empire got quote-unquote Christianized. You may can remember that from world history. But in the first few centuries of the church, we saw horrific persecution and part of that was, was because they saw Caesar as a god. So if you were unwilling to worship Caesar as god, then in fact you were seen as a traitor. Now remember in Roman, you, you may have remember from your Roman mythology and Greek mythology that they had a pantheon of gods. And, and there were, they had gods for everything. And so the Caesar was seen as one of those gods. So... Even at times, because Christians were, they actually got labeled as atheists because they wouldn't bow down to the whole pantheon or this whole myriad of gods that they had in the Roman Empire. They were seen as traitors, and so they aroused suspicions. You can even remember when they tried to trap Jesus, even when the Jews tried to trap Jesus, they tried to do it by taking the coin. And you remember they said, who should we give the money to? Should we give, basically, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus tells them that it's Caesar's picture on the coin to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Because the Jews didn't believe that they ought to have to pay taxes because they didn't believe that they were Roman citizens. So they're trying to cause a revolt that, take, that, that they're wanting to take place and in the midst of that they try to drag Jesus into the middle of it um, Christians began meeting in their homes at night um, and by the way th this is fascinating they rent their homes at night because they were having 
what we would basically call secret church. You show up, come to the house at night, try to keep the, the lights slowly lit. We've got to meet together and not try to let everybody know that we're meeting for fear of persecution. So because they were meeting at night and meeting late at night, they begin to accuse the Christians of having sexual relations and orgies that were taking place inside these homes when they were actually having worship services. Um, so all of this taken on account, we see that they... They, that things got completely out of hand and they used it as a reason for their hatred. Even a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper got Christians accused of cannibalism, that they were eating each other's body and drinking each other's blood. Um, so the wealthy end up hating them because they have a message that all people are equal, which raised a, a slave revolt um, or the possibility of a slave revolt. It's interesting to me especially with much of the revisionist history we see today. There is a, a desire to rewrite history, and inside of that, with that, you often see that people that are Christians are labeled as people who are sexist or people that promote uh, segregation or people that are homophobic and hate homosexuals, and yet when we read the New Testament, what we understand is there is not one single movement that has taken place in the last 10,000 years that has done more for women's rights than the New Testament. If you historically study how women were valued, they were valued as property until the understanding that the New Testament brought about about the value of women. Now, when we talk about slavery... And so often we hear that it is, was because of Christian influence that slavery was brought about. There's not one single thing in all of history that did more to overturn slavery than Christian doctrine. People like William Wilberforce, people that understand, people like John Newton that once they were radically saved that fought against the tide and understanding of what it means that people were equal by the blood of Jesus and created in the image of God. In, 19, in 64 AD, a fire ravaged Rome. Um, most historians believe that Nero set that fire. But the Emperor Nero probably set a fire to Rome that ravaged Rome and he blamed it intentionally on all the Christians, and so an assault on them began. They began to be arrested, tortured, thrown to wild animals. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us they were crucified, they were put on stakes, dipped in tar, burned, as garden, burned in gardens for lamps at night. This continued to ramp up under emperors Domitian and Trajan and Marcus Aurelius and Diocletian, and it still continues. And these are conservative estimates. It's estimated that over 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. And two-thirds, two-thirds of the 70 million Christians that have died for their faith have died in the last hundred years. Now think about it for a moment. How long has church history lasted? 2,000 years. But two-thirds of the people that have been killed for their faith have been killed in the last hundred. Does that tell you that things are getting better or getting worse? Now, anybody, I need to know tonight, and it's okay if you're not, we'll save it for another night. 
Are y'all kind of with it tonight? Like, y'all want to go a little step further, or y'all kind of, it's okay, it's hot. Like, so it, it might, tonight not be the night. But I want, can we, y'all want to talk about some end time stuff? Okay. All right. When we talk about the millennium, all right, that is the thousand years reign of Christ. I believe unequivocally that the Bible teaches that that is a literal thousand years. Now, there are theologians who believe that the millennium means different things. There are people that are called amillennialists, which means that they believe that it is not a literal thousand years, that we are actually living in the millennial right now, that there are post-millennialists who believe um, that, and there used to be more post-millennialists, that believe that things were continually getting better until eventually the society was going to get so good that at that point we were going to bring about the return of Christ. You, it's hard to find those anymore because people look around and they see that not only biblically is it wrong, but also just from a, if we're waiting on the world to get, if you're waiting on our world to get good enough that Jesus would say, boy, they've really cleaned things up. I think it'd be a good time for me to come back. That's, that's a losing battle. The Bible begins to describe that the, that the wickedness is going to continue to increase. And as wickedness continues to increase and we look towards the return of Christ, it won't be because things have gotten better. It will be because in a sin-ravaged, wicked world, we are actually moving away. It is falling apart. And so as we see that, we need to, to understand why we should expect opposition, not just in the first century, but why now we should expect opposition. So it's just a few points that jump out of these verses that we read. Number one, the world hates those who are not part of it. The world hates those who are not part of it. Keep in mind, Jesus said, they hated me or the world hated me first. If you belong to the world, they would love you as its own. That's pretty simple. We hear all the time, you need to be in the world, but not of the world. If we adopt true biblical Christian concepts, it's one of the reasons, and I'll let the cat out of the bag with some of you, and I'm 100% okay with having more of this conversation, but I'm increasingly concerned about the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, that's not me telling you that I'm ready to jump ship on the Southern Baptist Convention because I, I definitely think that we need to, to watch and be careful. But when we even consider allowing some of the things that have been allowed over the past five, six, ten years in the Southern Baptist Convention, there has been, there is an awakening of a liberal false theology that has become more pervasive in the Southern Baptist Convention. I do believe that there has also been a resurgence that has come up of conservative, biblically-minded people who are trying to stem that tide. That being said, you say, what in the world does that have to do with this? It comes because, and sometimes it's unfortunate, but you have to follow the money with things. And sometimes when an organization gets so large that they're more worried about what it's going to do for the intake of funds than it is what is the biblical thing to do. That is the rep recipe for compromise. What I think is unfortunate about that, obviously there's, I could, biblically we could spend hours hashing that out. But even practically, I don't believe it's been a good business move for the Southern Baptist Convention. 
And here I'll tell you why. You can't make your claim that we are a biblical inerrantist group. That's what we were founded upon. That's what the whole resurgence of the 1980s was from. In fact, the greatest growth during in the Southern Baptist Convention has been when it came out of the conservative resurgence of a belief in the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. When you move away from that and start interpreting it differently to try to make it more palatable to more people, that is when the church is pandering to the world. When the church needs to understand we are going to offend the world. In fact, it's our job to offend the world. That doesn't mean that we offend for the sake of being offensive. It means that the Bible is offensive. They don't like it. And, and I understand that there are people that will say, well, I just don't think it's palatable in 2023 that a church could say that only a man could be the preaching, teaching pastor of the church. I didn't write that. First, second Timothy, Titus, all throughout the New Testament, the the pastor and leadership of the church is to be made up of men. That is not sexist. In fact, it's one of the most misunderstood parts of Scripture when we, don't, when we understand that God gave assigned roles and those roles were not because one sex was to be demeaned over the other but so that there would be a created order of things and that, God, and that it would happen as God intended it to be. The whole issue of homosexuality is such an abomination and perversion that to even flirt with being willing to say that there is anything that is acceptable about that from a biblical standpoint, from the Old, Te from the Old Testament in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 all the way to Revelation, you, you can't even play enough gymnastics with the hermeneutics of Scripture to both agree with Scripture and with that. Now, those two things you say, well, you just picked two really racy subjects to get on. Yes, but here's why. I point to those two because those are the issues we hear debated all of the time, but they're not, they, they're not up for debate. It's not something that you should argue about. You either take the Word of God or you don't take the Word of God. It is... Um, what we have to be very careful of in looking at that we understand that the world is going to hate the message. It challenges people because the people that, that you and I live around all the time, the world we live in, is a group of people that want to be, as William Henley said in that poem Invictus, master of their own fate and captain of their own soul. So if I can't do what I want and do what I think feels good and whatever is right to me, then I'm going to oppose that. Why do people inherently, if you want to boil it down to the most simple, very simple part of theology, why do people hate God? Now, first of all, let me clarify that. People hate the God of Scripture. People will tell you that they don't mind the idea of God or even that they love God. But you have to clarify and follow up with the question, what God is it that you love? And the God that they describe will be a fantasy character. But if you're talking about the God of Scripture, there's a reason that people hate the God of Scripture. And it's because to inherently to accept that He is God, you have to then in turn accept you are not, which means that He has claim over your life, claim over your soul, and that He can 
ask you to do specific things and that you have to follow him. And so a great problem arises, and, and this would be um, you know, one of the messages that, that, I, that I think that the Southern Baptist Convention, that I, that I hope that they will hear. When Abraham and Lot, when they went their separate ways, we learned that Lot went and he pitched his tent in Sodom. When you pitch your tent in Sodom, and you've been in Sodom for so long that you start thinking that Sodom is normal, that's what happens often to the church. They've placed themselves in Sodom for so long that now everything we're seeing, and I'll tell you what it, one of the reasons it is so disgustingly disturbing to me. We've talked about the homosexual agenda and the transgenderism and everywhere that it is. I'm not that my children don't know that that's not wrong or not that your children might not know that that's wrong. But no matter what you do, you are, we are raising them in a world where it is normalized. So it has become so pervasive that what was not countercultural even 20 years ago is now radical. Think about, okay, with a 15 or 13-year-old, let's put 10 years on, on each of them and we're talking about a 25-year-old and a 23-year-old, if they're going to say that I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and that, there is, and that people are born male and female. How simple is that? I would never even have thought to challenge that growing up. You were born a boy or you were born a girl, and boys married girls and girls married boys. Now, even that line of thinking is so radically challenged that we're, we're, it is, it's just an evidence of the world hating the gospel, of the need for repentance, of the need for change. The world hates Jesus. Um, his righteousness highlights the human sin-sick condition, and people lash out in the way that one might break a mirror because they don't like what they see. And when the person of Jesus is brought up, when that generic word God sometimes is used, as the world uses it, often people, they don't throw their hands up because God can be whoever they want them to be, they think. But when the person of Jesus is used, one of the reasons that he is so offensive, it's the reason even we don't see prayers offered in public anymore, but even when they are offered in public, often people are told not to pray in the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is the one that it often offends people. And the reason that Jesus' name offends people is because that Jesus provides a specific identity to the person of God and requires an adherence to what the gospel message truly is. So the world hates Jesus. And then, and then number three, if you look at verses 21 through 25, Jesus makes it really clear. They'll treat you the same way because of my name. And the reason is they treat you that way is the world does not know God. When we talk about rejecting the gospel, People say, well, what's the worst sin? People say, all sin is the same, right? No. Not, the Bible says that there's a sin that is unpardonable. Right. Blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Well, if one of them is unpardonable and all the rest are pardonable, then doesn't one have to be worse than the other? 
I'm just using logic here. So what, how would you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I thought I had done it as a child and it scared me to death. Um, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting. I was in my room. And I haven't shared like all of my testimony with all of you, but there were some times growing up that just weren't easy at my house. Um, and so because of that, I can remember being in my room and where my closet, I, like where the closet in my room is, it had those slats in the closet, you know, like the little slats that go, and it had it slats that would go down. One of those slats was crooked, like in my, like, I don't know, I'd hit it with a ball or something, and then, so instead of being straight, it just was offset just a little bit, where if there was any light in the room, you could see, just see into that, that little hole, because it was different than the rest. And as a very small child, three and four, it was, that's where I imagined the monsters were going to, that, that they were going to come out of. But as I grew older, for whatever reason, I had trouble praying without looking at something and imagining something being past it. Now, this may be something that even some of you understand now. Like, it was hard for me to close my eyes in prayer because it was hard for me to imagine something listening if I couldn't think about where the person listening may be. So, it, even as a child, I would look at that, that slap, and that's where I would pray. And I can remember one night when things had gotten rough at the house, I can remember and sitting there, and I, had to, I, I couldn't have even been 10. I mean, I was very, very young. And I can remember having the thought that ran through my mind, God, I hate you. And I, because in, in my mind, it was, I don't like what's going on here if you, they keep telling me at church that you love us and that you could do it, but I don't know why things keep being like this, basically lashing out at God. Well, as I got older, I got saved, I got in student ministry, and they told us we all needed to read our Bibles. And so I started, I, that, that, not literally a Bible, like this Bible. I've still got the check marks, and so because I like check marks. And so I started reading through my Bible, and I got to the place in the Gospels where it said that there was an unpardonable sin. And what did we say that was? That it was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I had never forgotten the night in my room where I told God I hated him. And I thought, I'm going to hell. And I spent a long time wondering if I could be saved because I didn't know that that night that I had not committed the unpardonable sin. And so that's a horrible way to live. I don't care if you're a child or an adult not knowing whether or not you've committed a sin that the Bible says you can't be forgiven of. So I think it'd probably do us well to know what it would be to blaspheme. How would you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit that night? Definitely not. Definitely not. Or either I'm lost. And I don't believe that I'm lost. So what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, let me give you a clue. If you're concerned that you've done it, you haven't done it. Now that may sound odd, but let me explain to you. The blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Which, by the way, all of the Pentecostal and charismatic theology that I have critiqued over so many weeks and months, this ought to bring it home. 
because the misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit is one of the fundamental problems in the church today. What is the main role of the Holy Spirit? Is it to supernaturally gift you with abilities? Is it to allow you to be able to speak in tongues? Is the gift of the Holy Spirit to give visions? Is it to bring about supernatural healings? What is the primary role of the Holy Spirit? To testify to the person and work of Christ. Number one. We're going to study that next week, by the way. What Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. But specifically, if He testifies, if the Holy Spirit testifies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He, by the conviction of sin, so that we would see Jesus for who He is, and you only see that by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we would see our sin for what it is, how do you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? The way that you blaspheme the Holy Spirit is that you call the Holy Spirit a liar. Now, what is the Holy Spirit telling the truth about? The Holy Spirit is telling the truth about who Jesus is. So the only way to die on an on the unpardonable sin is to die being unwilling to, to confess the testimony that the Holy Spirit has. And the Holy Spirit's testimony is that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and that you must repent of your sins and trust Him to be saved. What is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an unwillingness to trust the person and work of Jesus Christ. The reason the world is to proverbially going to hell in a handbasket is because they have so hardened their heart to the Holy Spirit that they are willing to blaspheme Him. Now, is it too late? I don't know. I don't know. For, it's not for me to judge whether it's too late. But I can tell you this, we will never know till someone die, unless someone dies in their sins, it is possible not to die having blasphemed the testimony of the Holy Spirit about the person and work of Christ. But we need to understand that we need to have an expectation from Scripture of what it's going to look like to live in a world that hates God, hates the gospel, hates the Bible, and hates followers. 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29 You should suffer for His sake. 1 Peter 4.12 Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Luke 6.26 Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Discipleship has a cost. And if we don't see any opposition... It's probably because the church and the individuals that make up a church have refused to stand on the truth of the word and the truth of the gospel. Matthew 5, Jesus speaking again. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, we can sit and watch the news and shake our heads and go, mm mm, 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 and hope it gets better. It's not. It's not. I say that. It eventually will. But the presidential election and a conservative news channel aren't going to be what brings it about. The whole world needs to be blown up. 
Now, you say, well, that's extreme. That's what's going to happen. The whole world's going to be incinerated. We were told that it would never again be flooded. So how, what does the Bible say is going to happen the next time around? Fire. It's going to be blown up and it's going to start over. And here's what's incredible. That there is coming a time when there won't be an inhabitant of the new heaven and the new earth who does not love the person and work of Christ, who does not worship the very God who is its creator. And so, friends, we continually remind, are reminded that we are citizens of a different country, that we are aliens and we are strangers. Some translations call it sojourners, that we are travelers on this weary place of dirt where we eventually will get to a place when time will be no more. And at that point, what we know is that Jesus will be receiving what he has always deserved, and that is that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Lord God, we know we live in a world that hates you. And so, as we bow before you today and recognize that for us to honor you, it's going to require us to walk in a different path. It's going to require us to understand the gospel in a way that we recognize how countercultural it actually is. So, Lord, we stand before you today and recognize that if we're hated, that you are too. If our message is hated, that you are too. But, Lord Jesus, thank you that great is the reward for those that love you. Help us to be bold. Help us to be unashamed. And God, help us to be unsurprised at what we see as we look around. Lord, thank you for my friends and fellow travelers. Lord, that are doing their very best to honor you with their lives and their family and their church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.